Greetings, you all, and welcome to Ride and Talk. If you want to hear a story about true passion, then you've come to the right podcast. Today's guest is Peter Nettersheim, who has dedicated more than 40 years of his life finding, restoring, and bringing back to life an amazing collection of BMW motorcycles, cars, tools, instruments, and memorabilia. Although his collection spans 97 years of BMW motorcycle production, it's his passion for engineering and machinery, the people and the amazing background stories that really show his dedication to the brand. For Peter, it's all about sharing his knowledge of BMW's past while preserving its history for riders to appreciate. So grab a coffee or a Bavarian beer, sit back in your favourite armchair and listen to some of Peter's amazing stories. Let's meet the man with his own private museum, art gallery, dream garage, call it what you will, at his home in Long Island. Well, Peter Nettersheim, it's been a long time getting you on Ride and Talk, but finally I've done it. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. I'm happy to be here, Andy. Now, I thought I had one of the best man caves imaginable, with a few motorbikes, mountain bikes, tools and toys. But then one of my recent podcast guests told me he had 35 bikes in his garage, which made me feel a bit inadequate. But how many do you have in yours, Peter? Well, I'm um, first of all, I'm, I'm basically dedicated to the brand BMW. Um, there are a few other little pieces here and there outside of BMW, but I have well over 120 BMWs. Wow. So how did it all begin? You know, this love affair with BMW bikes. When did it all begin? And who was the inspiration? Was it your father or? Yes. You know, my father was a collector also of uh, uh, German-made uh, cars, uh, not the brand BMW, by the way. And I, growing up, got a, um, you know, an introduction to this. My father was always in the garage and uh, he was always looking for me to hold a wrench or, you know, he basically didn't need me to hold a wrench. He wanted to um, expose me to uh, something of his heritage, being from Hamburg in the, in the north of Germany. And I, um, I took to it. And I, um, as I got a little older, you know, I thought to myself, gee, you know, the cars that he collects, they're really old man's cars. I want something sportier. I want, I want a young man's uh, vehicle. And uh, that is uh, the introduction uh, to BMW. And uh, my real passion, you know, Andy, is not uh, riding necessarily. You know, motorcycling, believe it or not, is, is many different things to many different people. And um, I am a, a machinist and a restorer by hobby. That is my true passion. Uh, BMW motorcycles are fascinating to me because, in my opinion, they are the finest machine. And um, I uh, enjoy fine machinery, and this is how I migrated towards uh, the BMW motorcycle. Right. So it's so it's not just about the brand; it's the engineering as well as the heritage. It's more about the engineering, and it's more about the machining and uh, the mechanical aspect and the quality control uh, that attracted me to the brand uh, more so than you know the idea of motorcycling. Although I'm always on a motorcycle, but Typically, it's to test and, and run and uh, uh, check things more so than long-distance riding. Understood, yeah. So in your museum, then, it's it's obviously there, there are a lot of bikes in there and cars, but that there are also engines and parts as well, tools, instruments, and memorabilia. That That is as much your interest as the bikes themselves. Yes, it is not only the motorcycles, but... It is very much the presentation. My museum is now a uh, 
uh, is a means for me to uh, sit back and enjoy the art of the motorcycle, uh, the art of the BMW, to have it up uh, high on a table uh, with the proper lighting uh, in an area where you can sit and uh, enjoy perhaps a drink. Um, that is uh, very much of what I've tried to create uh, here in, uh, in my private museum. You can't fit all of the motorcycles that you own in your museum, I, I imagine. Do, do you rotate the, the, the exhibits inside? I mean, do you keep a lot in storage? How does it work? One of the things, uh, Andy, is, is, you know, we all deal with town ordinances and town codes and so on. My house is about 2,000 square feet. And, of course, we all have a home. I have four bedrooms, a living room, a dining room, a kitchen, and all of that. Uh, and that takes up about 2,000 square feet. My museum is 12,500 square feet. And this is all here on my residence. I did not build a garage. I built an art gallery. And I determined through town code that an art gallery is a permitted use. And um, the downfall, unfortunately, is that an art gallery, the taxes I pay are um, much higher than they would be for a garage. But I um, decided I wanted what I wanted. And um, so I pay uh, a little bit higher in my real estate taxes than I would normally. But I have what I want, and that's uh, 12,500 square foot of museum space to display the 100 vehicles that I have here. Three-story extension. So you've gone up as well as down, I suppose. 13 feet down, and um, yes, and uh, two levels above. So a total of three levels. Superb. Absolutely brilliant. I love the way that you've uh, messed around with semantics as well with the uh, wording of uh, calling it not a garage, but a, an art gallery and, and getting around it that way. Yes. And I will tell you, Andy, that, uh, that people who come here, um, when I uh, pose this, because I get that question quite often of how is it that you could build something like this, I explain that, in my opinion, this is an art gallery. And I will tell you that nobody argues that point. That's brilliant. So it's an art gallery, it's a museum, it's a garage, it's a private collection, it's part of your home, it's it's in a quiet residential neighborhood east of New York City, and, and it's not open to the public, but you do, however, love sharing it with enthusiasts. Yes, I, uh, I have people here every week, I'm not open to the public, but people, I, I don't really know, Andy, that I want to be open to the public. I'm not interested to be open to uh, individuals that have nothing to do on a rainy day and they, they, they're looking for something to do. I want to enjoy and, and share it with people who have a little bit of a like-mindedness that have maybe interested in machinery. They don't have to necessarily be interested in the BMW brand. Uh, very often, uh, I give a spark to people that uh, do become interested in the BMW brand, but maybe they were other brand enthusiasts and... Uh, and uh, I'm contacted on a regular basis uh, asking to hold a tour. And, and uh, my, I, I uh, open to small groups. Tomorrow night I have another group of about eight people coming. And uh, uh, we have a beautiful Izetta bar. I have a, a full bar here that uh, we get a chance to smoke a cigar perhaps or have a light drink and, and uh, talk about uh, the history of the brand. And... Uh, uh, that is certainly a regular thing here uh, on a, a weekly basis. 
Fantastic. I'm sure you've uh, put a lot of smiles on people's faces. But what I'm particularly interested in, Peter, is which part of the process of collecting do you enjoy most? I mean, is it the hunt for the rare model or making the deal, the painstaking restoration, or is it the displaying of the restored product? The passion, as I started the conversation, is the process of restoration. I am a a machinist and mechanic by hobby, not by uh, profession, but by hobby, although my business is very mechanically orientated. But um, in my business, I am not a mechanic. I am a, uh, I have a, I have, I do have mechanics in, sh- in a shop, uh, but um, my, my passion is restoration, refinishing, uh, and um, that is the, 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 the gist of the hobby of, of what's important to me at any point in time i'm typically restoring three bmw vehicles at once um and uh, i have a good shop a complete machine shop where i make the parts and the pieces that i need for the very early ones um so that would be um, my answer to your question of of what aspect is the most important and that is the the restoration the uh the bringing back uh, to 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 life, uh, what uh, what the vehicle once was. Yeah, I totally understand that moral restorer for sure. My dad spent about forty years restoring just one vintage car. He doesn't work fast, as you can tell. <laughs> but but when he'd finished it, I could sense that he was a little sad. You know, he doesn't actually drive it so much, and he only seems to get excited when it breaks down and needs fixing. So I get the impression that the mechanical aspect of the project was more important to him than the finish and the looks. I imagine you identify with that. The journey. It's all about the journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right it's not it's i can't tell you how many times um that um basically i've taken a motorcycle and fully restored it and and i have a beautiful piece and it's all done and it's ready and it runs beautiful and everything works and there is a certain disappointment um only it's the to the level that uh now i need to start the next one you know it's that it's that dream of what it will be and then once you've accomplished that, um, I, I, I need to move on to the next dream. This is just the way I am, I guess. And now I finally understand my dad, eh? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what your the qualities we're talking about is exactly as I listened to you, uh, uh, what it was for your dad also. Yeah. So tell me, Peter, what was the first BMW bike in your collection? Well, um, there's a very... A very pretty bike that BMW made in the 50s. You know, a very difficult time for BMW right after the war. Um, a, a desire to once again um, produce uh, products for, uh, you know, very high quality products for, uh, for, for the masses. And that model, the, the series uh, in the early 50s, very early 50s, uh, was um, was very, uh, in my opinion, it's the most elegant of models. And that model would be a, a 1951 R51-3. It was really their first fully post-war designed um, uh, motorcycle. Um, and um, it, it did uh, develop from the R51-2, which was, was 1950, a year before. And um, so that bike is what caught my eye, and that was uh, the first bike uh, that uh, uh, I decided I really had an attraction to. So uh, 
that uh, that bike is uh, still in my collection, as is every other BMW that I've ever bought. I'm not a buyer and seller. Every every BMW motorcycle I ever bought, I still own, including that 1951 R51 III, uh, which is uh, now fully restored, and I use it periodically. Yeah, I did the uh, Milan to Toronto rally on uh, an R51 slash three, and uh, it was just it was great to look at, lovely to ride. It actually felt it really felt quite modern, apart from the brakes, I would say. Yes, well, you know, the bike, um, the early version of it had what's known as a half hub brake, and of course, they were not extremely powerful. And um, the later version in 1954. Uh, uh, came with a full width hub brake, so uh, by then the brakes were substantially better than uh, than the early version. Yeah, not too uh, hot on some of those twisties in the Amalfi Coast, but it was a great experience nonetheless. So, how hard is it becoming to find pre-war bikes these days, for example? Well, it's interesting. Um, the pre- first of all, the pre-war bikes. Um, uh, if you're interested in BMW pre-war bikes, you have to go to where they were originally sold. And understand, I think a lot of people don't really understand what it was to be a motorcycle manufacturer, uh, you know, in the 30s and the 20s. You know, people bought motorcycles based upon uh, it being a very small world. So they bought motorcycles from a company that was uh, 50 miles away that made motorcycles. The concept of buying a motorcycle from another country or another region was, was almost alien. Uh, so the the answer to your question of where do you find these bikes? Well, the pre-war bikes. If you're if you're interested in in something uh, like that, a pre-war BMW, you have to go to where they were originally sold. And of course, they were originally sold in southern Germany, in the Munich area, Bavaria, in the uh, Schwarzwald, in the, in the Black Forest. Those areas of the world is where those bikes were originally sold. And what that means is that's where the the large quantity of them is. And we all know from normal life that uh, when you increase the supply, uh, you have a better opportunity of finding what you want and finding what you want at the price you want. So the answer is um, the very early ones, you have to go to where they were originally sold. They were not sold in the United States. They were not sold in Canada and and in Britain. They were were sold basically in the most uh, high quantities in, um, in in Bavaria, southern Germany, and that is the place where you find the uh, the biggest source uh, for a collector. You know, you hear these barn finds from time to time, and, and I always say to myself, how on earth are there still bikes being found in barns these days? Is it true? I mean, are there still bikes lying, you know, hidden under layers of dust? You know, so much of our hobby is romanticism. You know, this this romantic idea of of, of uh, you find a friend and he talks about his grandfather who has a, had an old barn and it's somewhere up in the in the country somewhere and we should go there and we should open these old doors and then you go up inside there and you find something. Well, you know, it's it's terribly romantic. Um, and I'll tell you, of course, unfortunately, it's not that true. But it is true. There are, there are. I mean, it is true to a smaller level, you know. And um, you periodically do find something that is a barn find. The problem today is that uh, with the internet um, and uh, uh, flow of information, 
um, nobody's giving away anything anymore. You know, uh, uh, if you found a bike, and I don't care what it is, uh, you or me, we found a, a motorcycle that we know nothing about. Well, within a half an hour, we could find out everything about it, including what it's worth. So I don't think there are any uh, uh, deals, in a sense, uh, on these bar these uh, barn finds. But there are periodically some barn finds, and I've I've found some of them at uh, at different times. Uh, they do come up, you know. Now I'm uh, almost forty years in the collecting of BMWs. I bought I got my first BMW in the late seventies. After forty years. Uh, there have been a couple of really interesting stories and interesting finds, uh, but most of the <laughs> most of the stories are I paid too much, you know, for the wrong bike, and and it wasn't in as good a condition as I hoped, and so I got more of those stories than I have of the other barn find successes. Absolutely, yeah, but you know, we we all love a, a good backstory and a romantic story, so uh, yeah, you just keep keep us hoping. But how how important is it for you to not just restore these bikes, but to also show them working and to get out and ride them wherever and whenever possible, Peter? Yes, that to me is another part of the what I consider to be fantastic BMW story. You know, with normal. Uh, restoration processes, you can bring back a 90-year-old bike that runs and works and everything operates on it. And not only does it run and work and operate, assuming, you know, you've restored it and got it to that condition, but these are bikes that you could park for a year, come back, they'll start, everything works, everything runs. Um, and that, to me, is a testament to the brand. Um, I have Incredible. also yeah. many unrestored bikes that are more than 90 years old. The same thing. They, they, they start, they run, the electrics work, the horn works, the brakes work. And it's a, it's a bike that you can take out on the road. And uh, uh, that to me is a, um, it is a quality of the brand because I've seen many other motorcycles. And I've seen many other brands. And... Um, I am not convinced that there is any other brand um, that you can have that experience with. To park a bike and literally two years later walk up to it, uh, you know, because most of these bikes are, are all magneto ignition. They're not battery ignition. So you don't even need a charged battery. They'll start, they'll run, they'll recharge the battery, and you can take them out on the road. You turn the headlight on, it works, and... Uh, uh, to me, that's fascinating and uh, another testament to the quality of the brand. Absolutely. Yeah, it is fascinating indeed. So how many of your motorcycles would you say are registered and on the road typically at any one point in time then? About 70 of them. <laughs> there could be more. Yeah, well, there could be more, but some of them are duplicates. And I'm a little like, why, you know, why do I need to have two of them that... Uh, are um, uh, you know registered on the road? I have uh, basically, Andy. I have every model BMW from the very first one, 1923, up until 1970. So, in that, every regular production BMW motorcycle uh, is in the collection from uh, 1923 to 1970. And then after 1970, I have another 35 or so more. Um, and I have BMW motorcycles up to the most current mo model. Um, 2020 model uh, and um, some sport bikes, S1000RR, HP4, and, and uh, uh, some of the models from the 80s and, and uh, 90s also. 
Fantastic. Yes, I mean, just going back to that original R32 you mentioned there, BMW's first production bike, of course. Is it true that you've got the oldest one still running? Yes, I have the oldest one running or not um, by serial number. We know that uh, BMW uh, began producing uh, motorcycles starting with uh, engine serial number 31,000, and I have 31,022. Um, which uh, we know was built in the second month of uh, full production of uh, BMW motorcycles. They start, started in October of 1923 with regular production. They made 10 bikes in 1923, October, and then they made another 20 bikes in November of 1923, and then production per month continued to, to grow from there. And this particular one I have is the 22nd one ever made. And it was made in November of 1923, and it is um, considered uh, known to be the oldest BMW vehicle in existence. Wow. Yeah, I remember seeing there are some old um, pictures from the factory, aren't there, from some of those original sort of production line pictures. I'm wondering if, you know, one of those bikes on, on that picture could be in your museum. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, let me tell you the story, because now that you ask, you know, the most common, there's a, any book on BMW motorcycles always starts out with the same uh, photograph. And it's a photograph uh, they have of the production of the R32 models. And you see several people working, and these people who are working are um, uh, in the plant uh, there in, in Munich, and they're working assembling these bikes on these special type of tables. And the reason they always show that, that that picture is that picture is the earliest photograph that BMW has of their production facility. And in that photograph, you'll count almost 10 R32s. And it turns out that that photograph was taken in November of 1923. So if we put a few things together here, we know from the BMW archive that there were only 20 R32s built in November of 1923. And in that image taken also in November of 1923, there are 10 motorcycles in the picture. Which And we know also that my motorcycle was built in November of 1923. So what it means is there's a 50-50 chance that the exact bike that I have here in my museum is actually in that photograph. 50-50. That's just brilliant, isn't it? What a story. 50-50 chance. Yeah. I guess um, that bike is not the rarest BMW bike in your collection, is it? No, no. You know, um, it's what, what's very interesting is the, the first bike, the BMW R32, was actually a very successful bike for BMW. It was not like we made a couple, we figured out all the things we did wrong, and we moved on to the next model. They made over 3,090 of them in a three-year production run. This is a lot of motorcycles. Now, the other thing you have to think about is as time go, went on, um, anybody who saw an R32 who was maybe a collector or interested knew that it was something special because it was the first BMW. There are many BMWs that came after the R32 that were not as successful in terms of the number of them built and not as easily identifiable as something that might be collectible or rare. And uh, yes, uh, to answer your question, there are I would consider several models that are not really um, that that are not really not not as common as an R32, or in essence, much rarer than an R32. 
What about R16s, for example, or the R37? I guess they didn't make many of those, did they? Yes. Well, the R37, they made 152 of. So that is a, um, a very rare bike, uh, and that is uh, uh, BMW's very first uh, a race bike. Uh, they started producing that in 1925, and uh, very expensive. And, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, very often, you know, these bikes were in a, um, uh, you know, in a, in a showroom, a dealer showroom, and uh, they always had a very high-end bike, like an R37, and they would put that on display in the in the dealership, so people would come in and see it. But then ultimately, they would buy the the touring version. And um, that is, by the way, uh, that is a marketing approach that BMW has had that they started with very early in the twenties that they still have today. And that marketing approach is to have a touring model a sport model, and an entry-level model. So they always wanted to have a bike for people who aspire to, to the quality of, of BMW, but maybe don't really have quite the money and uh, are looking for a, a, an ec economical uh, uh, version uh, to uh, be able to still be part of the BMW brand, but not maybe they don't quite have the money to, to buy the, the touring or sport model. And... Uh, that started already in the 20s. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Now, which of the bikes that you own would you say has the best background story, Peter? Oh, I got a couple of interesting ones. I've been a collector for um, a while, and uh, um, as we are doing today, I, I periodically get asked about you know the collection, and, and uh, I've had several, obviously, magazine articles, and uh, there's a book on my collection and so on. And I always make a point, and, and I'll make the point also with you at this time, that I'm always interested to share information with others uh, about the brand. Uh, if they have something interesting, that the story they'd like to tell, or, or they have an interesting bike that uh, they know of, or, you know, that I always make a point to include my email uh, and, and I'm available to send an email to and talk to. I, I, I try to, uh, to uh, make myself available to the BMW uh, community. And um, from one of those uh, magazine articles where at the end they put my, um, they put my uh, email in there saying that Peter's interested to talk to anybody about old BMW bikes. If you have anything that might be of interest, please contact them. Well, I received an uh, email from a woman in Germany. Um, now, this goes back more than 10 years. And she had informed me that her father-in-law had for years been trying to restore an R32. And this is not an easy thing to restore an R32. And she told me that at this point in time in his, his life, he thinks he might want to sell it. And she read this terrific article in the magazine about me. And she's wondering if perhaps I might be interested. And I said, well, uh, you know, I'm interested, you know, please send me some pictures. So she sends me a whole bunch of pictures on, on this particular R32 that he had. And it was a very, very early one um, within the, it was the second year production, but it, that was, that was early. And um, she indicated, asked if I'd be interested. I said, yes, I would. And we talked a little bit about the price because I said, look, I really don't want to fly all the way to Germany to, to get there, to see this beautiful bike all in pieces to then find out that the price you're asking is ridiculous. I, I just assume, you know, you have to give me a range of, 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 of uh, 
euro of what you're looking for. And, and we, she gave me a range, and I said, ah, I guess that's reasonable. Yeah, so we, we go back and forth a little bit on the discussion of the money, and and I say, you know what, for that, it's it's worth it. So now, Andy, I, I am committed to, you know, uh, uh, taking time off of work to fly to Europe, to um, hook up with a friend I have there to, because if I buy this thing, I need to take it with me. I need to make sure I have the money in the form of cash because these people, they don't take a check. You know, this is not how it, how it works. So um, I fly there and I meet this, this, uh, this woman and I meet her husband who happens to be there and I meet the father-in-law. And um, I begin to talk about, you know, or I begin to listen to this gentleman about this passion he had to restore this bike, but unfortunately he just couldn't get to it. And and uh, so I begin to ask him about the history of the bike. And it turns out that he has the history of this particular R32 to the very first owner. Amazing. And uh, that I thought was very unusual because... Uh, most of these bikes during the war, you know, they ground off serial numbers. They they tried to hide the origin. They These things were, uh, you know, you, you grind off the serial number. Now nobody can lay claim to the bike. That's what was, was going on back then. But in any case, so uh, he tells me the story of this particular R32 that he has, that he was actually the seventh owner. He has the history of all seven owners. And every one of the seven worked in the same factory where he worked. It was bought in 1924, and it was owned for 10 years by one person in the factory. It was sold by another person in the factory and another person. Until seven people later, this old man now that I'm talking with is the owner. Of course, you'd say, well, you know, what? why would seven people all working in the same factory buy the same bike? And this factory that he worked in was a very high-end machine shop. And I always think that these were people who knew and could see and could understand quality machinery. And that's why the bike never left that factory. There was always somebody in that plant that wanted that bike. And seven people later, this guy has the bike. Now, by the way, all in pieces. It was He took it apart in 1971. And by the way, I'm sitting here looking at the bike. It's right here in my uh, museum in front of me. So in any case, um, I look at the bike and it's pretty much all there. And uh, so I say to him, okay, so this is missing and we're, we're, we need a little handle here, which I can get and a little piece here that I'll have to make. Um, what, uh, you know, what, what are we doing with the price? And of course, the price, he says, is the absolute top of the range that he gave me. And I was, I was like, well, gee, you know, this is, it's, you're at the upper range of what, uh, you know, he said, well, pretty much everything is there and that's what I want. So I said to the guy, well, gee, you know, this is, this is a lot. He said, well, look, since 1971, I've been collecting parts, you know, because every time I see a part for an R32, I think maybe I'm going to need it. I better collect it. So I said, okay, you know, let, let me see what parts you have. So he takes me into another room. And in that room, he begins to show me the parts that he's collected. And he has enough parts to make a whole nother bike. Unbelievable. <laughs> I looked at this and I was like, this guy doesn't realize I'm getting two bikes for the price of one. And <laughs> in essence, now, 
Yes, the frame for the second bike wasn't the original frame that went with the second engine he had, and the second transmission he had didn't necessarily wasn't the original transmission. But they're all the same, so how do you know that that that's uh, you know that that it's different? And um, and that one afternoon, I was able to basically buy two of them for the price of one. Both of them are now together and running, and uh, uh, they're fantastic pieces. That's an absolutely brilliant story. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. It's just, yeah, well, you never know. You never know what's around the corner, do you? So how important has your relationship been with BMW Classic over the years, or Mobile Tradition, as I think it used to be called, and, and Fred Jacobs yeah. in particular? Well, you know, Andy, one of the, uh, you know, this this um, uh, hobby of mine, this museum of mine, this, this passion of mine, um, isn't necessarily something that would typically uh, translate to somebody who is employed by the BMW company. You know, um, we have a passion for motorcycles. I'm thinking that the people who might be listening to the podcast, they may also have a, a passion for for motorcycles and, and perhaps a passion for the brand. But it is a little bit much to assume that uh, people who have a job with uh, BMW, uh, whether it be on the assembly line, whether it be a corporate communications or whether it be uh, the BMW Group Archive, uh, as they are now known now, um, that they would necessarily have a passion. And what's always been extremely um, uh, satisfying to me is to find that, in fact, they are. That you have people who work for that company that are not just there because it's a job, that they actually um, really enjoy uh, the, the brand uh, yes, there's work to be done, and, and work isn't always fun, but I, I can tell you that uh, my personal experience with the individuals at Mobile Tradition, now BMW Group Archive, has been um, uh, terrifically motivating to me in that these people love what they're doing. Um, and um, that, to me, is another um, uh, you know, pearl that BMW has. I don't even think corporately sometimes they realize it, uh, that they have people that work for them that um, uh, have a real uh, passion and love for the products they make. And that, Andy, you cannot buy. And um, I, am, uh, I am thrilled to be associated uh, with, uh, with the company that has... Uh, uh, employees uh, that uh, have a passion and uh, drive the passion for the brand. Yeah, absolutely. There's some very special people there for sure, in including Fred. Now, we spoke a little bit earlier about you saying you've got all the models um, from 1923 up until about 1970, and you mentioned a couple of um, modern BMW bikes that, that you've got. Do you only collect the ones that interest you on a particular level then, the modern bikes? The straight answer to that question is yes. I don't buy every BMW just because I, I'm a BMW collector and I have to have every one. The early ones, in particular pre-1970, most every one of those is interesting to me um, on different levels. Um, but they're all interesting. Um, the bikes that came after 1970, uh, for me, uh, not every one of them is interesting to me. Understood. Do, what about sort of future classics? Can you sort of think of a bike that's been built in the in the last twenty years that you think will definitely be a future classic? 
20 years is probably uh, difficult to pick the ones that might be uh, a future classic. You know, one of the, uh, the programs that the BMW has, has uh, moved into is, of course, the sport models. And um, I think uh, that, um, you know, an S1000RR, um, which is an extremely you know, fantastic performing bike, you know, some of the S1000R HP4 race that they only made very few of, that probably will hold some type of uh, value, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the future as a collectible. Um, I think some of the very early GSs, the uh, R100 GSPD, uh, now closer to uh, 25 years old, I would say, uh, you know, that bike will... Uh, I think also uh, garner a a um, uh, classic BMW uh, uh, aura, if you will, and um, you know some of the other ones. You know, remember uh, BMW motorcycles to most people are not what they are to me. To most people, they are about riding, about the riding experience, about uh, traveling l large numbers of miles over all sorts of different terrain, and they do a fantastic job in that, as to ask them, you know, can they all do all of that and also be considered a classic at some point in time in the future, I consider to be doubtful. But that doesn't in any way diminish, um, uh, you know, the, the value of a particular model to a particular individual or group. Yeah, understood. Now, well, I would say my favorite BMW is without a doubt the R5, but I wanted to talk to you about the all-new R18, which of course took a lot of inspiration from the original R5. Did you get your hands on one of the new R18s already to collect or to ride? First of all, I uh, was privileged to um, uh, ride the Concept bike now over a year ago. So uh, the Concept R18, which I'm sure you've seen, and uh, this was the... Uh, uh, prototype, if you will, but it was the concept bike that they showed at various different venues. Um, I had that bike here in my museum uh, for a period of time, and I got to to ride that bike. Um, in addition to that, I have ridden the, the production version, the first edition, R18, and certainly that bike uh, will be a part of my collection. Um, I will tell you that um, I, I was fortunate to be involved in that whole program, starting on May 8th of 2015. So early on in, in the year of 2015, in, in uh, January uh, of 2015, I was contacted by BMW, and BMW said to me, we would like to come visit you. I said, okay, who's we? And I, I got a list of the people, and, and these were all engineers. And I was like, what, the, what are the engineers coming to visit me about? But I certainly uh, would welcome a visit by five engineers. And these five engineers showed up here in, on May 8th of 2015. And um, the first thing I had to do was sign a um, non-disclosure form. And I was okay with that. My daughter also was uh, here at the time, and she also signed that non-disclosure uh, uh, form. And they, at that point in time, told me of their plan to make this new 1800 cc. It was already established that that would be the approximate size of the engine uh, cruiser bike. And they wanted to know from me, as a collector, as one who was is, was intimately involved in in the the bikes from their history, 
they wanted to know from me, what are the icons of BMW? And when they first said that, I was like, well, I know, I think I know what icon means, but I really am trying to understand what it is you're trying to get from me. And what they were trying to get from me was very simple. They were trying to get from me, in the history of the brand, what are the features that make a BMW a BMW? And of course, you know, the easiest thing is you'd say boxer engine. You know, this is obviously a, a stable. This is one of the, the, the top icons of the brand. So we, um, we spent three days here in my museum um, looking uh, at BMW bikes from all different ages. And of course, you have to understand these engineers were not necessarily historians of the brand. They, young people, they don't necessarily know of the bikes. They maybe saw one here in, a, in their own museum or another one at a, at a show. But the advantage here was that they could see basically every production model and, and how they progressed. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that the R18 was a representative of the extension of the family. Do you understand what I'm saying? That that this isn't something that that makes a left when all of the time they've been making a right. You know that. Uh, so they wanted to draw from the earlier models features that number one were typical BMW. That number two made sense for a modern bike. We didn't want to talk about drum brakes. Uh, this is obviously yes, it's 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 something that BMW had and with twin leading shoes and all of that. And we discuss all of those things, but it's not practical for a modern motorcycle to have uh, you know twin leading shoe front drum brakes. It's just um, not uh, doesn't meet the safety standard that BMW has for their own level of products. So we we went through that and there were some some really interesting um I, after a while i got to, to think a little bit about what are the 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 features and the the qualifications and the specifications and the imagery that make a bmw a bmw and of course they came up with the five basics uh the the boxer engine uh the teardrop tank the frame this this uh, double tube frame that has this slope down to the rear wheel uh, so these were all the basic qualities that they knew the bike had to have. And then we looked at some other other uh, features, uh, the standalone headlight, um, the way the front gaiters were done and so on. And uh, and from that, they, they drew, uh, you know, on a piece of paper, uh, they drew a, 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 a sketch, a basic sketch of what they wanted. And, and, and uh, after five years, uh, the bike finally made it to production. Fantastic. I tell you what, I don't think I could keep a secret for that long for sure. <laughs> it's also great that, that your passion also seems to have rubbed off on your daughter, Kate, and the two of you are off and out riding together. So could you see her playing a bigger part in keeping your collection going in the future? Andy, uh, the collection of mine, the whole thing is the whole thing is kind of a little bit nutty, and I, I do understand that uh, I have a passion for it. I, I think I got it from my father, and I think my daughter has... Uh, uh, a passion also uh, to a certain degree. My my father was not, he didn't have the passion to the degree I did. He had five or six pieces in his collection and that was that was it. Um, he never had motorcycles. This is not, not his, uh, his thing. But yes, my daughter growing up around uh, the motorcycles and um, around me working on them, uh, it turns out that she happens to be uh, pretty good naturally as far as understanding mechanical things, which of course is not 
that common today in young girls, you know. In any case, my daughter um, is uh, uh, mechanically inclined. Uh, she has helped me uh, on sub restorations here and there. And um, we just got back, I will tell you, two day, three days ago from uh, riding in uh, Virginia. We uh, took two old vintage uh, BMWs. Uh, her, she has a 1958 R50. And I had I took my uh, 1966 R60 slash two, and we we spent several days riding the hills and mountains in in uh, Virginia. Uh, we had a wonderful time together, just me and her. And um, so yes, she uh, has a an eye for the motorcycles. Of course, she's itching to uh, uh, ride the S1000RR, which at this point in time I told her forget it. That's not happening anytime soon. Yeah, but she does ride uh, an R90, and uh, that's always a great bike. Uh, uh, so she can ride that if she wants. And uh, yeah, we we uh, get to share a uh, share a hobby. I spend a lot of time with her. Oh, that's fantastic. Now I'm sorry for the next question. It's a little bit sinister, but if something happened to you, is everything documented and cataloged and recorded so that you know none of the stories, the details, the machines, the components, nothing can be lost? Let me give you. Um, couple of a little bit of insight there first of all i'm 61 years old so um you know other than my back which has uh, been a little bit of an issue from the years of lifting heavy engines you know I just, after 40 years of lifting boxer motors my back is not what it used to be but i'm still pretty good i can get around and, and do what I, what I need to do so um a couple of things um it's interesting, you know, people who have come here over the last uh, 30 years, of course, the collection has grown in 30 years, 40 years, and um, substantially, you know, the, this new uh, museum extension I put on in the last five years. Um, it's interesting. People, um, and don't be afraid to ask the question you ask, uh, people early on always ask the same questions, and that was, uh, Peter, what other bikes are you looking for? What models are you missing? What are you looking out for? What's your next tr travel? You know, uh, where are you going? And all the, those type of questions. And now that I'm in my early 60s here, invariably that question that you ask always comes up. Peter, what happens to all of this? You know, this is not just a hobby. This is really a life's dedication. And to ask and expect in my family, my wife has no interest in this stuff. She's a wonderful woman. I've been married 38 years. Uh, my son has no interest at all. My daughter's the only one who has any interest. Um, this is this is a lot of work. You know, I am uh, I'm a slave to this. Uh, uh, so uh, as long as my daughter has an interest, you know, I'll um, I'll uh, you know expose her to it. But as time goes on, I mean, my, my plan, theoretical plan, uh, Andy, was that I would still collect for another couple of years until maybe I'm 65. Between the age of 65 and 75, I would just enjoy the collection. And then at the age of uh, 75, I need to start to sell it. And uh, that is going to be one hell of a period in my life, if I'm fortunate enough to make it that far. Um, the idea to sell these things, which have been my life uh, for 40 years, uh, I suspect is going to be very difficult for me. As far as documentation, by the way, everything is documented. Every bike, every repair order uh, is all in a computer, is all digitized. Every time I do a service on a bike, it's recorded. Um, each restoration has 
50 pages of, 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 of documents of the torque specs and what parts I put in, what parts I took out, what was machined, what wasn't machined, what was original, what isn't original, whether they're nickel spokes, chrome spokes, nickel wheels, chrome wheels, painted wheels. That's all documented in a uh, software I have, which is uh, designed for fleet maintenance. And that is the type of software that I'm using. Brilliant. Listen, we've been talking a lot about the past, but I'm also interested to know what your thoughts are for the future, Peter. And by that, I mean, when we lose the internal combustion engine, will there still be a passion and enthusiasm for things mechanical among the younger generation? You know, like the things that get us excited, how they're put together, how they smell, how they work. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's, you know, you, you, you're talking about it in the future. Well, we don't have to go to the future. We can look at today. You know, as a, I, I live in a residential area, and uh, I live in a very nice, um, basically the road is a circular road. There's about 20 houses on this circle. The only only people that basically drive on the road that I'm here on are people that are coming here for some reason. This is not a cut-through or anything like that. And what that means is there's very little car traffic. And as a young man, um, I was, you know, on my bicycle and I would ride down the road and I would look into a neighbor's garage and he's working on something. And I'd walk up and, hello, Mr. So-and-so, what are you working on? You know, can I hold the range? Can I, you know, there was a, um, uh, not only was it neighborly, but it, there was a, um, an environment that, I don't know, somehow promoted, uh, you know, uh, it promoted getting young people um, interested in, in working with their hands. And my father always said to me, he said, Peter, um, when you think about the tools you have in life uh, to, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the quality tools that you have in life to do the job that you need to do, remember, your hands are the most important tools you have. Learn to work with your hands because if you can work with your hands, um, you will have the tools that you need uh, for life. And uh, I uh, always uh, understood that, that, you know, when you can work with your hands, you can make things, you can uh, fix things, you can, and, and I'm always involved in fixing something. And um, what I'm getting at, it, it, to answer your question about the future, is here I live in this neighborhood, and I have the, a garage, and the door's open, and you can drive by, and you can look in, you can see when I'm working on something or other, and nobody comes by. No little kid walks up and says, hey, mister, what are you doing there? That is that an old motorcycle? You know, what, what year is that? There's, there's no interest. There's nothing. That's, it, it's pitiful. I, I, am, I would love to have an apprentice. You know, some kids come by. You look, let me show you how it works. This is how it starts. You know, you want to you wanna be part of this? Here's a broom. You start with this. You, you learn how to clean properly. That's how you start. And then, you know, to have an apprentice or somebody that I could... I could show and, and, and pass some of my knowledge on to. There is some specific knowledge, I will tell you. And I mean, you know, it's a typical, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. But there is some specific knowledge that I have in, in uh, working on these old bikes that is not printed anywhere, that's not written anywhere, uh, that all goes when I go. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you a little example. Just, I just want to tell you one little story. I had rebuilt the R32 um, transmission, and I uh, decided that, you know, the original type of seals on the transmission are, they're felt seals. They're not really very 
very good in, ter in terms of sealing. And I put a very heavy oil into the transmission. And I figured, okay, that'll work. It should be fine. Well, I began to ride the bike, and it would leak all over the place. And I could not figure out what was going on. So I, I uh, messed around with the seals. I changed it, made it a little bit thicker, put a little more pressure on it. And I could never get the transmission in the R32 to seal properly. So one day, I was in, 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 in Europe. I was in uh, Mannheim at the time. There was a big show there. And I knew there was an old guy there who really knew BMWs. I was 50, and I was probably 45 at the time, maybe even 40. And this guy was already 80. So this was, he's long gone, this guy. And I finally, he was a German guy, and I, I learned the language so I could, I could talk with these people. And I said to this guy, I said, can you tell me how you get the transmission sealed? And, you know, the typical German the way they are, they're very... Uh, you know, what do you mean? There's nothing wrong with the seals on a BMW R32. Uh, you, you must be doing something wrong. And he said, well, how are you putting the seal in? And I said, I explained how I was putting the seal in. And he said, well, what's happening? I said, the oil, it's, it's always coming out. And he looked at me, he said, oil? And I said, yeah, oil. The guy says, that's your problem, you dumb cop. The R32 transmission never had oil in it. It had grease in it. <laughs> Amazing. It's not in any book anywhere, you know? And these are the type of details. How does, you know, how do you pass that on unless you have somebody who's with you, who's interested, who wants to learn and, and so on. And there's a hundred things like that, that, that I've learned over the years, all the mistakes that I made that uh, I learned from, uh, that I would love to have to pass on to somebody young who's interested, who wants to learn. But those young people are not here. They're all sitting in front of a computer. They're all yeah. sitting in front of a television playing games on video games and um so i don't know what the future is but it looks bleak as far as i'm concerned for for what what we collect or what i collect yeah tragic to to hear you say that i mean i'm sure that there might not be young kids knocking on your garage door peter but there's thousands of people listening to this young and old who'd uh, just love to be an apprentice i tell you and uh, learn the ropes and and get started with that broom and work their way up absolutely listen it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you i could have, i could go on all day but uh, i've taken up far too much of your time already so i just wanted to say thanks ever so much for uh, coming on Ride and Talk. It's been brilliantly. I, I, there are a lot of questions I haven't asked you yet, but I am well aware that in three years, uh, BMW Motorrad is going to be celebrating its centenary. So uh, rest assured, we'll be getting you uh, back on for sure. Well, thank you very much, Andy, for, for taking the time uh, to, uh, to ask me about uh, my passion and interest for the brand. Um, I, uh, I look forward to... Uh, uh, to speaking with you again, certainly the 100-year anniversary of the very first BMW motorcycle is already now just around the corner. I certainly look forward to that. And please make sure that you let all your listeners know that if they wish to contact me, I would love to hear from them. And they can contact me at bmwmuseum at hotmail.com. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thank you, Peter. You better go and check your email because I'm sure the inbox is filling up. Take care now. Thanks for sharing just a few of those wonderful memories, Peter. And thanks for the big part you're playing in keeping the brand's illustrious history alive and kicking. By the way, if listeners want to take a sneak peek inside Peter's museum, it does feature in episode 5 of A Bavarian Soul Story, so search that one up on YouTube. It's the episode where host Tommy Kearns was literally blown away by what he saw when he visited. And if you see it, 
you'll understand why. Right, that's it from me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and remember, if you do come across that rare barn find, an original vintage BMW bike hidden away under some dust sheets behind some old farm machinery, then do give Peter a shout. It could be the most important call you make. Bye for now.